Getting more women into the workplace has been a decades-long challenge for governments and business leaders alike. While there's been a focus on reducing the gender divide, how much attention has been paid to the cultural background and racial diversity of applicants? It's this intersectionality that the Diversity Council of Australia is paying close attention to in their latest report. Co-author Virginia Mapedzahama is the member uh, is the member of her, is the education director rather of the Diversity Council of Australia, and she joins me now. Welcome. Thank you. Thank you, PK. Glad to be here. This report looked at the experiences of women who you call culturally and racially marginalised, or CALM for short. In the professional sphere, what were your key findings? Okay, so we had um, about four key findings that we um, uh, we report in our um, in our report that we're going to release today. Um, the first thing was just really about what's going on in the gender equality and the gender equity space. That um, while we've made great strides, as you said, um, in the gender equality space. Um, we've often overlooked the significance of race within that um, that paradigm or within those um, that discourse, and that has tended to not necessarily kind of benefit all groups of women or all categories of women uh, equally. Um, so, for example, the women that we spoke to um, told us that um, that gender equality discourse doesn't quite, um, you know. Uh, they don't, they don't quite get the gains there. So that was the first important thing that gender equality um, discourses when they overlook race, they tend to not really benefit um, culturally and racially marginalized women. The second thing was that there is still a continuation of um, uh, a biased leader prototype that's happening. Um, and that's usually based on kind of white Western male kind of characteristics that again tend to marginalize um, culturally and racially marginalized women. Um, and one of the other things that we found um, was in regards to social capital. Um, that the that as in as much as it's significant and very important, it is it, it, it does tend to play a big role for um, people progressing into leadership positions. That it was actually inaccessible for um, for calm women that they have um, less access to, and it's actually a specific type of um, social capital that tends to be again white um, amongst white male social networks, um, and they don't have access to that, so they tend to not uh, kind of progress into leadership positions quite easily. And then the last thing, of course, um, which probably doesn't need mentioning really, um, is around um, the voices of um, calm women not being recognized, not being centered in discussions around even gender equality, really, that they they sort of even marginalized within those discourses and they're even marginalized um, in workplaces when people are talking about how do we become more inclusive. Um, this group tends to be, um, you know, not really at the center. So, and when they're not centered, their particular and unique positioning um, doesn't, isn't actually taken into account. So those were the four key findings and we call them locks. And um, in our report, we offer sort of some solutions on how people can actually address this, this particular locks. So code switching, can you give us some example of how it plays out in the workplace? Um, so code switching was was um, something that was that came out really really um, strongly in our research, uh, where um, we found that calm women often have to um, code switch or kind of act 
um, act white, they called us, they, they, they told us that we have to act white and male to get into this, into this particular, um, you know, roles or positions in leadership. And if you don't do that, you tend to not go in there. So for example, you have to um, speak differently, speak with a different accent. Some talked about speaking, having to speak with a different accent. Some talked about having to wear, you know, different kinds of clothing that, that they know is associated with power or having to um, just behave and, and 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 conduct yourself in a particular way that's really goes against your your culture or your um you know your um your behaviors just so you can fit in so code switching was um a main thing that uh, we found women um, you know culturally initially marginalized women have to do a lot and what impact does it have on women who do code switching i mean you know obviously code switching is about trying to fit in to try and advance in some way in a workplace right what are the ramifications of trying to do it? Well, I mean, when we're talking about code switching, I think um, it's it's important to actually talk about that. It's, it's about the magnitude of it. Um, I think a lot of us, we um, a lot of us generally, we kind of tend to um, adjust our behaviors in one way or another just to fit in in, in some ways in 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 certain different social spaces, right? Yeah, they, they we're talking about something that people have to do in order, to, like this is about survival. This is about if you don't do this, like your survival actually depends on you um, being able to do this. So it's about the magnitude of it. So there's always that, um, that um, you know, mental burden that comes with it, having to do that all the time, um, to deny who you are, to deny your, um, you know, your values or your culture or, you know, your be- you know, just to to be someone completely different in order to get her head in life. So there's there's a huge mental load that comes with that. And there's uh, quite a bit, a bit of research that talks about the, the, the mental implications of code switching um, on people's identities, on people's, you know, they, they're taking time away from, other things they could be devoting their mental capacity to in order to do this um, this code switching. But I think the most important thing as well with code switching is that um, it, it doesn't actually change the structures because all of these things that we're talking about in our report, all of the things that we found, at the end of the day, it's about systems and structures, that these are things that are embedded, um, those locks that we talk about, they're not about individual people or individual leaders. They're things that are actually embedded in systems themselves. And so when people code switch, nothing is changing in the systems because they're changing themselves in order to fit into the into the system. So there is that mental load, but there's also the fact that it doesn't actually, um, it might change individual women because they might go into, um, you know, progress into senior leadership, but the, the system itself remains unchanged. You talked earlier about solutions. What are they? So yeah, so some so the solutions that we offer, I mean, for starters, um, when it comes to um, you know gender equality, which a lot of organisations are doing already, um, many organisations are really quite advanced um, in the way that they're doing gender equality work and the gains that have made, been made in the workplace. I guess for this report all we're um, getting or asking organizations or recommending organizations think through is engaging an intersectional lens. So just um, uh, recognize that women aren't a homogenous category. And when we treat them as a homogenous category, um, inadvertently, we will leave some people out of that, of 
you know, whatever we're looking at. So it's just really recognizing that for some groups of women, it's not just gender that marginalizes them, but there's other things as well that act at the same time to, you know, um, as, as a form of marginalization. And in our report, obviously, we were focusing on race, but it could be other things such as sexuality. It could be ability or disability. It could be, um, you know, age. So an intersectional lens is just a really good framework for organizations to work with in terms of understanding the diversity of women um, in, and also to implement systems um, and structures that are actually inclusive of all categories of women. Because without that, inadvertently, we will um, just privilege um, one group of women over um, many other um, groups of women. So that's the first thing that we recommend that um, organizations take that intersectional approach. Um, in terms of like a leader who is a leader in the workplace, we obviously recommend that organizations really do an audit and look at um, who do they have in leadership, uh, what does their leadership look like? And therefore, what kind of a prototype are they working with? And it, it's it's not necessarily anything written down, right? But when you do that audit, it will come out, right? It will, it, it, it will show um, what sort of prototype you're working with. So you, we always say, you know, start with, with, with yourselves as people in the leadership. Um, look at your, the biases that might be affecting the decisions that you're making about recruitment, about recognition and about reward, and then redefine, um, you know, that, that leadership prototype along those lines. So, um, and really just start to value teams with a diversity of capabilities and, and kind of, um, and, and, and I mean, in our case, we're looking obviously at racial and cultural diversity and just really centering that and recognizing that when we don't do things intentionally, um, we inadvertently end up, end up with, um, with um, you know, some biases. So it's about just, again, organizations doing that kind of, um, that kind of racial audit. Um, I guess the, the, the and, and, and the other thing that we um, recommend when it comes to social capital is, I suppose, really just trying to, because at the moment, social capital is just based on one's own networks, right? So it's kind of this thing that's informal and you make your own networks. And yet these networks are, can be quite influential. Um, so we recommend that organizations make social capital quite accessible. And so try to find ways of formalizing or embedding um, um, things around social so, uh, sponsorship and and in those informal networks into the systems and structures of organizations. Again, it's it's just everything we're talking about is about organizations embedding into I call it into the DNA of the of the um, of the structures themselves. That this is not something that uh, when a calm woman enters into the workplace, then it's up to them to create these networks because the systems and structures are already there. That they'll say, you know, this is our uh, sponsor sponsorship program or, uh, you know, that kind of stuff. Um, and of course, the last thing is about, which is about voice and centering voice of um, calm women is really about, um, yeah, listening to what, you know, calm women tell us about their, their experiences. Because, I mean, we went to calm women because we wanted to understand what happens when racial marginalization intersects with a gender marginalization. Mm -hmm. And so we went to the group that experiences it and they gave us, um, and they told us stories that um, when you pick up our report, you will um, automatically see that it's the narrative or the story coming out of it is quite different to any other story that we would hear if this was just about gender equality yes. or if this was just about race. V Virginia, we're out of time. Thank you so much for joining us.
Thank you. Virginia Mapedzahama is a member of the Education um, Section, the Director of the Diversity Council of Australia. You're listening to ABC RN Breakfast. Getting in touch with ABC RN is easy. Join the conversation live using the ABC Listen app's call and text features.